Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid. Just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion, with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Father, we come before your majesty and your greatness and we sit under your word, Lord, with, uh, with a heart that uh, we pray that you'll give us a heart that will receive it and to, to be humble before it. We pray, Lord, that you will, uh, by your spirit, work in us, moving our hearts to, to want to, uh, to, to desire you more and more and to want to uh, leave our, our, our sin and, and to bring it before you at the cross, at the feet of the cross. So we do pray, Lord, that you will uh, move us to, to, to want to know you and love you deeper in our lives. We do pray for this now as we understand uh, what's going on in Mark 5. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, quick exercise to start our time, start this talk. Uh, I want to ask you that you guys to turn to the person next to you. I'm going to give you one minute to do this. Turn to the person next to you and ask them, if they were stuck on a deserted island, what are the three things that you'd want with you? All right, the first three things. If you're stuck on a deserted island and there was no chance of escape, all right, so don't ask for a boat or a plane or anything like that. If you were on a deserted island, three things that you would want with you, no chance of escape, no mobile phones, because that's just, you know, that's a... Dumb answer. Uh, do that. 60 seconds. I'll time it and I'll, I'll come back. Let's do it.
my friend. All right, 60 seconds is about up. I'll bring you guys back. So I'm really interested in hearing, well, I don't need to hear your answers, but are you fascinated by what the other person said in terms of what they would uh, want in terms of if they were on a deserted island? Uh, did a lot of you come up with survival gear, like a knife, flint, rope, perhaps? Did, yeah, no? Uh, someone you love? Your, your husband, wife, your family, your mum, dad. <laughs> your dog or your cat. Some people want to bring their dog or their cat to a desert island. I get that. Someone you love. Uh, who said something entertainment-wise, like a book or Nintendo Switch or no entertainment? Some, yep. Uh, other comforts? Someone yesterday I asked this question. They said skincare. Did anyone say skincare? They want to bring skincare with you. Uh, someone said they, they want kimchi. They need kimchi on this island. No? Like, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, the, the answers that you probably got are, what did you choose? What are the three things that you, you put your hope in when you're faced with the challenge of survival? What are the three things you put your faith in when you need to survive? I think when we're faced with these life and death situations, uh, some of us are more practical. We'll bring gear, won't we? We'll, we'll make sure we can survive, survival tools. Others will bring loved ones. We want uh, to know that, that, that we feel safe around those we love and that they're there for us. You know, someone to, someone to hug even or talk to when things are tough. Others, we need pleasure. We need something to do, creature comforts, comforts because what's the point of living if we're not comfortable and happy? Uh, I wonder if you ask the same question. What do you need to survive, not on a deserted island, but to survive in this world that we live in when times get tough? and you're desperate for relief, and you're desperate uh, from the stress, um, the day-to-day, -day, what do you put your faith and hope in? It, it might not be a knife or a flint, but it might be your, uh, a roof of your head or uh, the digits in your bank account. It might be the need for a partner, a loved one, a family member, a friend. It might look like pleasure. It might look like, you know, if we don't have pleasure in this life, what's the point of living? We give these answers uh, to help us get by in life, and we put our hope in them, don't we? To prolong and preserve the life we have on this earth. But are they going to really give us peace? Will the investments and wealth help us sleep at night? Will loved ones live forever? Will pleasure and sex sustain us when we're dealing with grief? And we put, we're putting our hope in that, in, that, in that bottle of red at the end of the week, or the overseas holidays, the luxurious lifestyles. But don't we just feel the emptiness when it all passes? What are we putting our faith and hope in? What is giving us peace in this life when everything really does feel so temporary? Because whether we're on a deserted island or not, the same fate comes to us all, doesn't it? When we deal with the existential crisis in life, when fears are at our doorstep and we just want to escape, we have to deal with the, the fact that we're all going to have to face death. Where will our hearts find peace? 
In our passage today, we read about these two characters, and they're in that scenario, right? They're facing fear and grief, and they're trying to discover where they're going to put their faith and hope in that will give them peace. And so let's read it. Let's get into this. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Uh, last week, just some context. Last week, we left off with Jesus. He was casting out demons. Uh, before that, we had him uh, still a raging storm. There was a storm. He was on the boat uh, with a few words. He stilled the storm. He's flexed his power already, hasn't he? We've seen that. And so we shouldn't be surprised that in this story, he shows his power again when it comes to illness and even death itself. Let's read it. Verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, this guy, his name is Jairus. He's a synagogue leader which means like, like a church leader. Uh, he's not a rabbi or a teacher, but a person who would have been just well-respected in society. He falls at the feet of Jesus. Something is going on. Something, he's desperate, isn't he, for help. Who does he turn? He, he turns to Jesus. Now, you can imagine what would make a man like that, like, of this sort of status, do that. It's, it's desperation, isn't it? In chapter 3, if you remember, in our series, you can go online, they're all there. Uh, Mark, in the, gospel, in, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, there were the religious leaders, teachers of the law, his colleagues, his peers, saying that Jesus is from the devil, right? The Pharisees, the, the council, they call him a blasphemer. They want Jesus arrested and killed. Now there's a synagogue leader going to his feet, asking him for help. Yeah, this, this guy is desperate. All his peers don't like Jesus, but he's going to Jesus because he knows that there's nowhere else he can go. He's utterly without hope. This little girl is dying. You can sense that, can't you? There's this desperation, a love of a father for his daughter. You're desperate. And you've heard, hey, there's this miracle man, Jesus, in town. He's a healer. You've heard the stories. Maybe if Jesus just touches her, she'll be healed. He has no idea what to do. His daughter is sick, so he humbles himself at the feet of Jesus. You know, I don't know if you've ever been uh, sick for a long period. You've been on, on that waiting list for the hospital, see a surgeon or a doctor for months, or your family member is dying, or, you know, this is your little girl. So vulnerable, in pain, probably feverish for days, not eating, struggling to breathe. No one can help but this miracle man, Jesus. Would he, give, would he even give you the time of day? Maybe if he just touches her, that's all. I'll get on my knees. I'll beg him. Maybe he'll come. You know, it's amazing because Jesus actually agrees. There's, there's no sort of debate. There's no conversation. Jesus agrees. He goes with him. Wow. Imagine that. All of a sudden, relief. Jesus is going to come over. There's hope. He's going to heal my daughter. Imagine how you'd feel that sense of relief. So you start leading him down the streets. You're at this brisk pace. You're thinking, oh, hurry. Come on. My child is dying. Hurry, hurry. There's not much time left. Don't walk. Run, Jesus. Run. But what happens? What do we read? A crowd gathers. A crowd gathers and pushes all around him. And you can, you can imagine, Jesus got this celebrity status. Uh, a couple of years ago, I watched this documentary on Netflix. I think it was 2020. Uh, there's a lot of documentaries coming out about Princess Diana. Uh, I don't know if you, you know, the, the, the people's princess, right? And she was always swamped with paparazzi. It was such a sad thing to see. You know, she, she took her family to the, the Swiss Alps for a holiday, and there was paparazzi on top of this mountain taking photos of her and her family. And she was like, can we please have some privacy? I'm with my family. And, and you can imagine this is Jesus, legit, no privacy, no personal space. He's always, he always has crowds around him. 
That's the sort of life he led when he was out in public. People followed him everywhere, waiting to, to see what's the next miracle he'd perform. Perhaps, perhaps for entertainment purposes or, or for, for more fodder for gossip, whatever it might be. Or maybe they, like Jairus, wanted to believe he could save them. And isn't that what happens next? We read this, right? A large, a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there in that crowd who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Verse 25. We're hearing the story of Jairus. His daughter's dying. But let's hold that thought. Let's park it for a second, right? And we're seeing the sandwich thing that Mark does. Remember how I, I, I mentioned that a few weeks ago? Mark does sandwiches where he talks about a story and then he interrupts the story with another story. That's what's happening here. There's another story happening in the middle of Jairus' story. This woman's been bleeding for 12 years. It's a sandwich going on. Why is this important? Well, let's look at this woman. She's been bleeding for 12 years. Something's hemorrhaging inside of her. Most likely menstruation, menstruation related, right? This is tragic because this whole bleeding thing meant that she would have been isolated from society. Uh, you have to understand the context, right? Ancient Israel, uh, she would have been an outcast. In Leviticus 15.19, this is the laws of the Old Testament, and Levit- if you're taking notes, Leviticus 15.19 says this, when a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. They have to isolate themselves, essentially, during that seven days every month. Imagine that for the women in the room. Imagine you had to do that. It's like, it's, it's like she's the one with COVID and everyone has to avoid her. Otherwise, you'll be defiled as well in her presence. But it's not only for women, okay? Men, if, if you have blood or, or, or semen or other discharge, you're unclean as well, okay? So they're the laws. That's the law that was given to Israel. You're spiritually unclean. And you'd have to go through this purifying process according to this ceremonial law of cleansing. It is a lot harder for women, honestly. Uh, and, and so we look at this and we see this description that Mark gives us. Verse 26, she'd suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She suffered, she spent and grew worse. She's not just suffering, she's suffering now too from, from the cures. It's getting worse. She spends all her finances thinking that she'll find a cure, be healed, but to no avail, it actually makes her worse. And isn't that so relatable? Uh, don't we sometimes keep looking for cures and spending our money on cures to just feel a little bit worse each day? I'm not gonna, I don't want to downplay this bleeding woman, right? But don't we, sometimes when we suffer, we're desperate for solutions as well. I know people who will spend money on tarot cards and fortune tellers to be given false hope when they're suffering. People who will spend money on drugs or more alcohol that leads to dependency and aggression. It makes them worse. Some, we, some we're desperate to look for love and, and we look for it in promiscuous sex or one night stands or just, or, or, or just a string of boyfriends and girlfriends which just amplifies the insecurity. It amplifies the loneliness that we feel. It makes things worse. This woman in the story is suffering and she's exhausting all her finances, her medical options, and she's still suffering. She's not getting better. She's getting worse. And we're starting to see why the story is here, aren't we? She's just as hopeless. She's just as desperate as Jairus, the synagogue leader, who is desperate for Jesus to heal. And she's heard that Jesus is in town. She gets amongst it. And just think, and she's thinking, if I can just touch this cloak, if I can just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Again, you have to understand the culture at this time. There was this this common understanding, uh, even a superstition, that holy people have this magic power 
there's a superstition that even exists today that if you just go uh, touch the feet of a statue, a saint, if you kiss the ring of the Pope, whatever, there's, you'll, you'll be blessed. There's stuff like that that's going on here, a superstition that magic happens if you just touch. And so there's magic mixed with her hope. She's thinking, I'll just touch his clothes and I'll be healed. She reaches out and against all social taboos, right, that came with an unclean person touching a rabbi, a holy man like Jesus, there's this risk that she'll defile him. What does she do? She does it at that risk. She's going to make him unclean. She's desperate. And what do we hear? She's immediately healed. I love what it says. Jesus realized power had gone out from him. What does that feel like? All right? Butterflies in your belly? Going to the gym and feeling tired afterwards? That, that sort of power? Is, I, I've said this before. I've said this joke before, <laughs> like the power is like, he's probably feeling like an extrovert and an introvert and how like an extrovert hugs an introvert and an introvert just feels <sighs> tired after that. How you? I just like, oh man, my power just left my body. <laughs> you know, and I can imagine that's probably how Jesus probably felt. Like, it's like, oh my goodness, I feel different. Like someone just touched me, right? And I don't know, but that's how he calls it out. Who touched me? I know power has left me. Step up, speak up. She's trembling with fear. Imagine how she's feeling, an outcast. She sidesteps the law by touching him and making him unclean. You'll probably get excommunicated for that. She steps out and she tells him the whole truth in front of the crowd. She surrenders her, her shame before Jesus. In her vulnerability, she speaks in front of the crowd. She's exposed. And by doing so, she's risking her social standing before all the people. She could be humiliated, but how does Jesus respond? He responds with love, doesn't he? Verse 34 says this, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Be freed from your suffering. Jesus calls this woman daughter. He won't let someone just superstitiously draw power from him. No matter what age we live in, humanity, we still do this. We reduce God and Jesus to some impersonal, magical power. Uh, there's some superstition we don't call it Christianity. We call it the, the New Age movement. We call it manifestation, the universe. We want to take power from that. Uh, this impersonal power, though, doesn't look out for you, doesn't know you, doesn't care about you. But Jesus here wants a relationship. While she wants to access Jesus as some sort of impersonal, magical power, Jesus himself calls her out to desire a personal relationship. You would think Jesus would be annoyed. I know the introverts in the room get annoyed when extroverts hug them without permission. I know, right? Jesus would get annoyed. You think, but what does he do? He says, daughter. He responds with kindness and love. And he says, go in peace. Jesus won't be reduced to some impersonal power where you think you just draw magic from him. Just pray to him when you need some miracle to happen in your life. He's not that secret can of spinach, right, that gives you superhuman strength. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. This healing word here, your faith has healed you, it's really the same word as saved. Your faith has saved you. Because it's so much more than your body being healed. There's a holistic healing happening. There's restoration to her body, yes. There's restoration to her soul too. There's restoration to society. There's restoration back to God because she's been made clean. No more bleeding. 12 years of bleeding has stopped. There's salvation to her. You've been healed of your illness, but you've been restored your dignity and honor as a human being. You're cleansed spiritually now, and she is called daughter. 
What does Jesus want her to know? It's not touching his cloak that saves her. It's her faith. There is no magic in his clothes, but there's an element of faith in him. And by coming before him and surrendering before his feet in complete vulnerability, there's no hiding in shame, she's saved. It's her faith in him, her faith in his power that saves her. And he gives her peace from fear to faith to peace. Now you're wondering, aren't you, at this moment, Jesus, you're taking your sweet time, aren't you? What kind of reckless doctor would stop by and help other people when there's a dying girl that needs to be saved? You know, in, a, in an emergency room, wouldn't that be negligence, right? The, who's got the higher priority, a dying girl or a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years and will just keep bleeding? Like, she's still alive. There's a dying girl that needs to be saved. Imagine being the dad, Jairus, He's rushing. He turns around and Jesus is dawdling, just waddling around, talking to the crowd, looking around for a woman who touched him. Hey, what the, what's going on? Who touched me? I'd be pulling my hair out, wouldn't you? Like, can't you see how urgent the situation is? My daughter is dying. What do we read next? Verse 35. While Jesus is still speaking, was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told them, don't be afraid, just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Believe what? How can I not be afraid? Uh, you know, doesn't this sound like a couple of weeks ago what we heard when, when he was on a boat with his disciples and there was a storm raging outside? What did he say to his disciples? He says, why are you still afraid? Do you still have no faith? You know, that week I said faith is the antidote to fear. Death is scary. We're afraid of facing it. In this case, your daughter is facing death, is pronounced dead even. And Jesus says, don't be afraid, just believe. And I imagine Jairus has lost all hope at this point. How can faith help? She's dead. I mean, people know what a dead person looks like. They have no pulse anymore. They're not breathing anymore. Have faith? What kind of faith? Jairus at this moment is called to believe and have faith, just like the bleeding woman who was just healed. Believe. Believe in him. And so we read from verse 37 what happens. He rocks up to this house. He finds that there are professional mourners outside. They're crying and wailing. So in these ancient cultures, these mourners were usually present at funeral processions. They're like actors with, with tears that aren't real. Crocodile tears, is that what they call You know, fake tears. They're, they're not real. They're there mourning and, and wailing. And, and when Jesus says, no, this little girl is just asleep, how do they respond? They, they laugh at him. One second they're crying. Next second they're laughing at Jesus. You know it's all fake. So first, from verse 40, after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in there where the child was. Verse 41, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He goes to the girl and he touches her. That's a, that's a, that's a huge taboo. Again, another big taboo here, right? A big no-no in Jewish custom and law. The laws of Israel say that if you touch a dead corpse, you'll be made unclean for seven days. That's in Numbers 19, verse 11, if you want to read that. Jesus moves towards a girl and touches a dead girl and makes himself unclean. And he says these words, though, in Aramaic, doesn't he? Talitha kum. Uh, it means this little girl, get up. But it's also so much more than that. 
the, the way you should translate this is, is not just little girl. It, it's more nuanced. It's like, it's like, darling, my sweetheart, wake up. My, 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 my daughter, wake up. Uh, there's, this, there's this thing that happens when I talk to my daughter, Talitha, and, um, and Roy always laughs at me because he's like, Mikey, you're so different around here. And I'm like, yeah, I am, because she's my daughter. And so I talk to her like, hello, my gorgeous, hello, my love, oh, it's so cute, yeah, I love you so much. You know, and I never talk to anyone like that. And so he's always laughing at me when he sees me talk to her. Uh, but that's that sort of, you'll, you won't understand until you have a daughter, right? Because that's the sort of, and that's, I imagine, Jesus, that sort of tenderness to this little girl, daughter, darling, wake up. Such simple words, yet with so much power. To Jesus, death is just like we're asleep. She gets up, literally has the energy to walk around as if nothing has happened to her. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, uh, in 2014, I got my appendix out, right? And I went under in general anesthetic, and I kid you not, I, I, I couldn't get out of bed the next day. Even though I had the surgery done, I couldn't walk around. I felt like I was hit by a bus. Uh, if I'm ever brought back from the dead, please just let me lie in bed a bit longer. <laughs> I don't want to get out of bed, right? Just let me rest. Give me a week to recover. She gets up like it ain't a thing, right? Now, there's so much happening here, but that's our sandwich. Jairus and then bleeding woman and then back to Jairus. Why does Mark tell it like this? Because firstly, I think God wants us to learn about how Jesus operates. Look at the similarities of these stories side by side. They're both female. They're both without hope. They're both unclean. They both need some sort of physical healing. One is bleeding, the other a corpse. They're both called daughter. They're both treated with that tenderness and kindness. How long has the woman been bleeding for? 12 years. How old is this girl? 12 years. What do we learn? Jesus touches them both. And in both situations, in the midst of uncleanliness, they're healed. He isn't made unclean. He doesn't need to go through a purification process. He absorbs their uncleanliness. He ends their impurity and he restores them. Healing power flows from him. Now, while we can be so focused on the physical aspects of these miracles, healing and being brought back to life, we forget that purification is happening in these situations, that they're being purified. They're no longer made unclean. He absorbs it. They're both restored. He heals the bleeding woman. He raises the dead. What do these interactions point us to? It points us to a future hope, doesn't it? To a greater cleansing. We can be saved, not just from bleeding, but a salvation from humanity's sin. And those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, will one day be raised with him. This is what the gospel tells us. That's why the gospel is good news, because Jesus' death on a cross means healing has come for, for you and for me. Remember the woman, right? Power left Jesus when she touched her, when she was healed. But you know what happens at the cross? He gives up all his power. He gives up all his power, his very life, so you and I could live forever. He went through weakness and death, his perfect life sacrificed for us, and he absorbs our uncleanliness, our sin, so our sinful lives can be cleansed, so we could be saved. He is the great substitute, redeeming our sin with his very life and sacrifice. You see, these pictures of healing and raising from there, it tells us that it's just a, a really, it's just a foretaste, isn't it? Who is this man, the man who's going to bring us, bring resurrection, hope to us, salvation from our sin, a new life, eternal life with God? That's how Jesus operates. In his mercy and grace and compassion and love, he reaches out and touches the unclean, purifies the sinner, 
and he invites you and I. He calls us son and daughter and invites us into a relationship with him. He wants us to know God. And we, we're, we're reading about this, aren't we? We're, we're seeing God's character in this story, how Jesus operates. But secondly, God is showing us too how we respond to who this man is through these narratives. We see the woman and Jairus as two people who desperately need Jesus. The question is, are you aware that we need Jesus just as desperately? Uh, uh, these two have physical conditions. Yes, it's obvious what their needs are. And, and people think Christians only come to Jesus because Jesus will, will fix all your problems. He's like a crutch, right? He'll, 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 he'll fix your debt problems. He'll magically make your credit card mortgage debt go away. People think that. He'll fix our health. He, we won't need a wheelchair anymore. He, yeah, he might heal us. He might heal us like the bleeding woman. The cancer in our body might get eradicated by some miracle, but it's not always so obvious, is it? Realistically, we're all going to get sick at some point. Not every ailment is going to be cured. We'll still catch the flu. We might get Parkinson's in old age. We'll still all physically die. We don't read that in the story, do we? But we know the woman and the little girl is going to die one day, even if they're healed now. Life is temporary. But you know, what people fail to see is that we aren't Christians. We don't believe in Jesus because we only see him as a miracle worker, do we? We trust Jesus because he saves us from our deeper need, our spiritual need. He saves us from our sin. Something that isn't as obvious as a broken leg or hemorrhaging, bleeding, but the sin that exists in our hearts, seen in our behavior, our actions, our pride, our selfishness, our greed, our brokenness. Our sin isn't always obvious, but when we recognize a man, will we be like Jairus? Will we be like the bleeding woman? Will we come and kneel before Jesus and surrender? That's what faith is going to look like. But notice something as well. Jairus and the woman, right? They've only got this one thing in common, that they both desperately need Jesus. They have no hope apart from him. But think about Jairus. He has a name. We know his status in society. He has the, enough status to go to Jesus face to face to ask him to come to his house. The woman has none of that. We don't even know her name. She's not going to be remembered in society. She has no position her only identity is her shame, her health issue, her bleeding. And she's got to approach Jesus from behind. Where, Joseph, where Jairus approaches Jesus face to face, he comes from status and privilege, but Jesus has, Jairus, Jairus has no advantage regarding things that matter. Right? Because it's the woman Jesus stops for who exemplifies faith. And what we see is really the roles reversed. Jesus calls her daughter. It says, your faith has healed you, you're in peace. To Jairus, he says, don't be afraid, just believe. You know, sometimes it takes fear that will lead us to faith. When things have generally worked out for you due to your status, due to your privileges, to actually have to depend on someone else, to trust and surrender to Jesus, that can be really hard. For Jairus, he's exhausted all his options. He's now fearful of what's going to happen. He's desperate. And in that fear, God leads him to faith. Jesus says, just believe. We need to just believe in Jesus. There is no real hope, no peace without him. We can't have all the status and privilege and wealth in this world, but still be so lost and so empty and without hope, especially when we all have to face death as well. It's why the existential or, or midlife crisis is a real thing. See, the woman realizes there's no one else that can help her and whatever hope she has left, she puts her faith in Jesus. Her faith saves her. 
you and I, we need to take a long look at our hearts. Will we, like this woman, come before Jesus exposed and tell the whole truth? Will we, will we be willing to stand before the crowds and admit we desperately need Jesus, that Jesus is the only one that can save? That we can stand before God exposed, admitting that we aren't perfect, that we too are unclean before him, that we fall short of his standard of, of goodness and holiness, that we have sinned against God, and it's Jesus alone that rescues us. Isn't that what our story should be about? Isn't that what our testimonies should be about? Not about us, but about Jesus, how we desperately need him. Do we know that deep, do we have that deep need for a savior? Will we, will we, do we believe that he can save us? Isn't that the response that God wants us, wants from us? That if we truly find, uh, if we truly want peace, we'll, we'll see that there's no other peace except in Jesus through faith in him. That's what faith is shown to us here. Faith is confidence that rests in Jesus alone to save. Jairus can't depend on his status or reputation as a leader of the synagogue. He probably is a really upstanding citizen. Follows all the rules. He probably thinks he deserves God's blessing. This woman is an outsider. She's looked for help everywhere, but they're both required to believe, to have faith in the Lord Jesus. Death is not the end. He is resurrected from the grave. Talitha Kum, darling, wake up. Yes, he'll raise us as well. Those who have faith in him. Death itself yields power before the power of Jesus. And that's what we have to understand from this. Friends, will we come before Jesus with that same helplessness, that surrender? You know, he's not here to expose your shame. He knows it already. I know we all have skeletons in the closet, that secret shame we carry. He doesn't get the woman to step out to just expose her shame. He gets her to step out to to expose her faith and to display his grace upon her. That's what he wants everyone to see. We don't need to be afraid of confessing our sin. Don't let shame control you, but point people to the great forgiveness you received by faith. How often do you share about your sin with others? How often do you share about your sin when you share your testimony with others? Why don't you? Is it because you're afraid? You're more afraid of that shame? Or do you want to bring people, do you want to share about your faith that even though you have this sin, this shame in your life, Jesus has rescued you from that. He's the hero of my story, not me. Here's what Jesus says to you and to me. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Now I know in this crowd, trusting Jesus is hard. I've talked to many of you before. It is hard. It requires following the unseen into an unknown, believing Jesus' words over and against the threats that we see or the fears that we feel. To trust Jesus requires us being actively aware, though, of, of what we're putting our belief and trust in. I asked you this question earlier. Where are you putting your hope in if you're on a deserted island? And sometimes, sadly, it's those things that we take with us to a deserted island that we think will rescue us. We believe in them, hoping for a cure to our sickness, salvation for our souls, to preserve and prolong our lives, but they can't save us. They can't. They're so fragile. And when we stop to consider it, you and I will realize we've actually been passively trusting in them for so long. It's no wonder we get so hurt, so disappointed. Our hopes dash when things don't go our way because we're putting our trust in the wrong things. No wonder fear and anxiety becomes our narrative instead. We're building a house of cards, aren't we? And the slightest blow means 
everything comes crashing down. You and I, we've been there, haven't we? I've been there. I put my faith in things that have no solid foundation, and I've crashed and burnt. And Jesus keeps reminding me, come look at me. Look at how I can calm a storm. Look at how I can cast out demons. Look at how I can heal a bleeding woman and even raise this little girl back to life. Jesus says, don't be afraid. The winds and the waves will come. Not going to lie, right? Death itself is always on our doorstep. Jesus says, have faith in him. You might, not have, you might not have answers to your bleeding or the cancer or to the loneliness that you're suffering through. You might have to wait 12 years before you get an answer. You might have to wait this entire lifetime. You might never get an answer. But you'll see God at work even amidst the suffering. And your faith will strengthen. You'll find a joy and a peace that's impenetrable when you put your faith in Jesus. You see, God's love for you isn't going to be, it, it can't be, his love can't be determined by what your schedule looks like. Jesus won't be rushed. He shows us that with Jairus, wait patiently and trust. And when you do, you'll find a safety, a security, a peace that you won't find anywhere else. A solid foundation that is unmovable, a hope that's unbreakable. What Jesus does is really give us a glimpse of the peace and healing we'll have in heaven. In heaven, there is no hemorrhaging of blood for 12 years. In heaven, there is no longer 12-year-old daughters dying. There'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more fear, no more death. But while we live in this sin-stained world, in, this, in these sin-stained bodies, look to Jesus. Be patient in suffering and have faith. Our faith is never going to be perfect. But the object of our faith, Jesus, he is perfect. And so our faith must cling to him. Our faith must cling to him in our hopelessness, hopelessness and helplessness. The object of our faith to heal, forgive, and save us. In him, we have peace. Let me finish with something personal. If you don't, like I said earlier, if you, you, we have a daughter. Our daughter's name is Talitha, right? But if you don't know, we, we named her Talitha because of this very passage, Mark 5.41. For close to five years, Heidi and I struggled with the disappointment and grief of not being able to fall pregnant. We saw doctors. We tried many different procedures, but month after month after month after month, we were faced with this disappointment of, of an empty womb. We even experienced a miscarriage along in, in, at a point in those five years. And so you can imagine, right, the shock and relief that we felt when we finally felt pregnant, when we finally got that, 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 you know, that, that pregnancy test done. And it was, and, and man, I, I cried. I'm not gonna lie, I was, I was like, man, five years later, finally. God is so good. And when it came to naming her, it just made sense for us to name her Talitha. As a way for us to remember that God is the author of life. He's the source of resurrection hope. God is the one who started Talitha's heartbeat, breathed life through her nostrils, and has sustained her growth to this day. To us, Tilly's life is a miracle. But you know what? She points us to a greater miracle. That even in the hardest of times, God can grant us peace because he has saved us from the hopelessness of sin and death with the promise of eternal life. We have many hopes for our daughter Tilly, but the truth is the one thing that we hope she'll take with her through every season of this temporary life is that she can have peace in Jesus when she puts her faith in him. And as your pastor, this is my hope for you too. That if you ever find yourself on a deserted island crying out for relief, more than anything, you guys will turn to God's word. Bring your Bibles with you. Bring your Bibles with you and turn to his promises. Because like Jairus and the bleeding woman, 
you have placed your hope and faith in a God who knows you, who loves you, and will sustain your life both now and into eternity. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace and his compassion, his, his tender heart, that he looks at us and he knows that we are people in need, that we can't save ourselves, we can't rescue ourselves. Yes, Lord, sometimes we will suffer in this life. There will be hardships and trials, but help us to keep being focused on the bigger picture. You've given us uh, life and peace and security, not just in this life, but for eternity as well. Help us to have a faith uh, that, that is focused on him, the one that is unmovable and unbreakable, the hope that is unbreakable. And help us to, so Lord, that as we face the suffering and the, and the struggles and the trials in life, we'll still have peace, knowing that Jesus is with us, knowing that you love us, knowing that we have a greater hope. We do pray for this now in your son's name. Amen.